I invite you to turn your Bible with me tonight to 2 Kings chapter 15. This is God's word. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then Yahweh smote the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house while Jotham the king's son was over the house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did Are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, as his fathers had done. And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people and put him to death and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so it was. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria and put him to death and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then Menahem struck Tifsah and all who were in it and its borders from Tirzah, because they did not open to him. Therefore he struck it and ripped up all its pregnant women. In the 39th year of Azariah king of Judah, Menahem son of Gadi became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul 1,000 talents of silver so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom in his hand. Then Menahem exacted the money from Israel even from all the mighty men of valor, from each man fifty shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria returned and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah his son became king in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned two years, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. 
He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Pekah, son of Ramalia, his officer, conspired against him and struck him in Samaria, in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Aria. And with him were fifty men of the Gileadites, and he put him to death and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the fifty-second year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, son of Ramalia, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned twenty years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Debat, which he made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon and Abel-Beth-Makah and Yenoah and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he took them away into exile to Assyria. And Hosea, son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck him and put him to death and became king in his place. In the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of Yahweh. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, Yahweh began to send Rezim, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, against Judah. And Jotham slept with his fathers, And he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, you know that when we're reading our Bibles, it's perhaps chapters like this, when we are perhaps reading in the morning or the evening, that we can tend to get lost in. These men are very distant from us. Some of their names are unfamiliar. These events seem far away. And so we're asking tonight, as we know that your word is living and active and absolutely relevant, that you would, by your spirit, grant that we be shaped by your scriptures, and we understand what your spirit has here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, here we are in chapter 15, and we have lots of kings. When you're studying your Bible, especially these literary portions of the Old Testament, You want to notice not merely the details, you want to do that, you want to notice the names, you want to notice the sentences and the paragraphs, 
but you also want to recognize the shape of, in this case, a chapter. And maybe you notice that there's a king of Judah at the beginning of chapter 15, and there's a king of Judah at the end of 15, and in between is a series of five kings of Israel. That's not coincidental. That's actually intentional by the Holy Spirit and the original human author of this book. He's putting before us the contrast between God's dealings with Judah in the south and God's dealings with Israel in the north. And they will share a similar fate in that both will ultimately be exiled. But there is a bit of a comparison here. The unfaithfulness and the brazen idolatry of Israel in the north is being contrasted with the relative relative, uh, orthodoxy in Judah in the south. And I say relative. It's not as though Judah in the south is is a bastion of of all of cons- pure conservatism uh, and worship of Yahweh. But in comparison, Judah in the south is a recipient of God's mercy in terms of his covenant faithfulness to the house of David. And the first king there you see in Judah is Azariah. And you need to remember that Azariah is Uzziah. This is the same king. His name is used in this one chapter, both Azariah and Uzziah. And you know Uzziah if you've ever, if you remember Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. It's this Uzziah. This is where we are. Isaiah the prophet is alive at this time. This is the period of time that he is prophesying in along with other prophets. I want to, so just that's the overall shape of the chapter. Uh, The chapter begins with telling us about Uzziah and noting that he served 52 years in Judah. The chapter ends with his son, Jotham, king over Judah. And both of these kings were kings who did what was right in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, They did worship God truly, even if not perfectly especially in Uzziah's case. So uh, that is the overall shape of the chapter. But for the key theme of the chapter, I think we need to look at verse 12. And and we'll go through the rest of the chapter, but I want to just orient you here in the beginning. That verse 12 is not coincidental. Nothing is coincidental in God's word. And again, there's a beautiful design to this chapter. It is bookended by these two kings of Judah, and the Spirit of God is holding out to us is God's covenant faithfulness with the house of David. But here in the middle of the chapter, almost, perhaps not quite, we have this almost aside, almost um, by the way comment that, oh yeah, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, which he had spoken to Jehu. We, by now, we've forgotten Jehu. He was, he was uh, a few years ago, several generations ago, uh, four to be exact, and we forget And then there's this phrase at the end of verse 12, and so it was. And so it was. It's a a really meager phrase, isn't it? It's not the kind of phrase you might think you find in God's holy word. And so it was. And so it was. It's a powerful little phrase. It seems rather powerless. It seems small. It seems really of insignificance, 
And so it was. And note here that really that phrase could be applied to this whole period of time. This period of time is covering some 30 years of Israel's history in the north and just going through it. And so it was. Just seems like those are the days. So it was. Kind of like the days we're living in. Just going year to year, politician to politician. Days of great evil and wickedness in our country increasing but so common that it's just the norm. So much evil in the world, so much fearful news, and and legitimately so. And it seems like we just pass year to year, decade to decade, century after century, and so it was. It seems as though God is so distant. And this whole chapter, you might think, apart from verse 12, would seem as though God is sitting idly by, just kind of letting things pass. And we're just going from bad to worse, especially in Israel in the north. Seems that way. Seems that way. But by way of understatement, this chapter is pointing out to us that behind the whole hum days, the evil days that we live in, the evil days that we've read about, that behind it all stands the sovereign God with his sovereign word being the determining factor in the unfolding of the events of history. Hold on to that thought. We've seen that theme, of course, before, but it's especially emphasized here in chapter 15. First, we begin with God's faithfulness to the house of Israel in verses 1 to 7. He raises up for Judah in the south, again, this Azariah, who is Uzziah. He's 16 years old, verse 2, when he becomes king, and he reigns for a very long time, 52 years. And again, that detail is important. Speaks of longevity, that's a grace. Uh, Whenever there is a change, even in our own country, with relative, well, it used to be relative peace with the changing from one president to the next. Now, we have barely a little breather until it's it's, it's election season again, and, and we are prepared for just unending news about this candidate and that candidate and this scenario and that scenario and uh, who's going to get elected and the wretched choices that we apparently have at, some, at this point, some point. I'm not saying they're all bad, but uh, most. And, and we just, it just uh, it's a bit of a turmoil every couple years for us now. So it is a grace of God that he gave to Judah over a half century of reign by Uzziah. Now, of course, Uzziah, about uh, towards the latter part of his reign, he grew in pride. You have to go to Second Chronicles to learn of this. And he took to himself the idea that he wanted to be like the other pagan kings around The other pagan kings were not only king, they also were, in many places, uh, considered the high priest. And God had, in his wisdom, in Israel, divided those offices, um, especially that of the high priest. And and yet we learn in 2 Chronicles that Uzziah had come to a point where he became so proud that he had the idea, you know what, I want to be able to walk into the 
holy place and offer up incense as well. And because of that, God struck him with leprosy. And you remember the story. They, they looked at him and, and Uzziah, who was all proud and angry at first, when you see everybody's looking at you with a terrified face, you kind of wonder what's going on. And he figured out that he was quickly uh, come, being taken over by leprosy. And they ushered him out. It is interesting here that 2 Kings does not relate that episode at length. You have to go to 2 Chronicles for that. And again, that there is an idea here, Dale Ralph Davis is helpful in this, that uh, there's a sense in which God is, uh, I say this reverently, hitting, hitting the fast forward button in the history of Israel, and it is a mercy. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary, it's so helpful, he says, uh, our chapter is wrapped by two kings of Judah, and the writer wants to run you through this period very quickly. It blitzes us through five kings of Israel, verses 8 through 31. In other words, um, even though if you were living in those days, and even though these men thought they were impressive, these various kings, God is mercifully to we who are reading a few thousand years later, hitting the fast forward button through their reigns. And really, there's a comment here that God is not impressed with any of the kings of Israel in the north. God's generally not impressed with men, period, and their supposed loftiness. And so Yahweh smote Uzziah because he thought more highly of himself than he ought, and he was a leper. And being a leper, Uzziah, in verse 5, he had to live in a separate house. He was considered unclean. According to the law of God through Moses, the covenant that God established with Israel at Mount Sinai, Uzziah was rendered unfit to be able to draw near and worship God. And that leprosy was because of his pride. That's the summary of his whole reign in verses 1 through 7. 52 years summarized in seven verses. It's a reminder to us again to not be overly impressed with even the best of the leaders that God raises up among us. To thank God for those godly leaders, but to always remember at the end of the day, they're just mere men. And mere men can become proud and make terrible mistakes like Uzziah. And notice that though Uzziah had lived before God righteously for so many years, that his pride was of such an offense that God thought nothing of imposing that kind of judgment upon him. It's one of the reasons why we fear the Lord. He does not mess around when it comes to not sharing his glory with another. He is king, ultimately, over all. So Uzziah comes and goes in 52 years. But during this 52 years, up in the north in Israel, there are a series of, of coups, of takeovers. We go from Zechariah to Shalom to Menahem to uh, uh, to, uh, sorry, Pekahiah, and then to Pekah. So there's a few uh, rotation of guys in the north. That speaks of turmoil, that speaks of division in the north. Uh, they are being devoured from within and from without. I do, before we quickly go through these kings, I do want to remind you that during this period of Israel's uh, idolatry and apostasy in the north, there still are, in small pockets, a faithful remnant. 
We're not told about them in this chapter, but we're going from wicked king to wicked king, evil king to evil king here in the north. But remember that God had said to Elijah that he would keep 7,000 in Israel who did not bow the knee. And that was in his generation. But we know that through, uh, through the prophets Isaiah and others, that God maintained a remnant of faithful, God-fearing men and women, not only in Judah in the south, but from every tribe. They're there. We're just not told about them. I found that um, rather encouraging because here we are, and, and along with other brothers and sisters in this area, in the churches, we're not many. <laughs> we're very relatively few. And we wish that were not the case. We, we wish that there was a conversion of many souls. We pray for that. We work for that. But at the present time, we are small. We are little. If someone was writing a history of New England in the late 1900s and early 2000s, probably the influence of the evangelical church in New England probably wouldn't even make that history book. We are so insignificant. We are so small. And maybe that's perhaps we can look at ourselves. But I believe that even if we're being faithful, that there are periods of time like this period of time when that remnant is simply living in fear of God, grieving over the sin around them. These godly people are grieving over these wicked kings. They hate the worship that takes place in Bethel and Dan. They don't participate in it. They worship Yahweh truly as he ordered, but they are very few and far in, far in between. And they're there. And they're living through this period of time, grieving, trying to be faithful, And why do I point that out? Because just because they're not in the text doesn't mean that God's forgotten them. And just because they don't seem to be significant, just because it doesn't seem like they seem to be, seems like they are not making an impact politically or even ecclesiastically in Israel in the north. They are doing what God had called them to do which was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, regardless of whatever anyone else does. They are there. Just remember that. And remember that sometimes when we feel small, and sometimes when we feel like, wow, we're really not having much impact, that that's actually not an uncommon experience of God's faithful remnant throughout the generations. So here they are. Uh, Here are the kings of Israel in the north. And in verses 8 through 12, we begin with Zechariah. This is not the prophet Zechariah, but this is the king, Zechariah. And he is not a good guy. He is a son of Jeroboam the second. That Jeroboam uh, in verse 8 is uh, not the Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That that would be about almost 200 years earlier. That's the guy who set up the worship of Bethel and Dan. This This is the Jeroboam that we learned about in chapter 14. Very powerful king in Israel. Perhaps the most powerful king of Israel in the north. And here is his son. The son of the most powerful, influential, wealthy king of Israel in the north. Zechariah. And he's just like his father. And he follows after verse 9. The sons of of sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. In other words, he engages in that golden calf worship in Bethel and Dan. Remember that scene, those pictures we saw. 
he worshipped there. He reigned from Samaria. We saw those ruins in the pictures that we looked at last Sunday night. And we learned that he reigned for only six months. Wow. That's a reminder that no no matter how powerful a, a wicked person, evil leader may be, it may seem like there is no stopping him. Uh, God can bring up his dynasty short just like that. Jeroboam II, the most powerful king of Israel, doesn't have much of a dynasty. His son lasts for six months, six months, before he was killed. And notice in verse 10, he wasn't wasn't killed in secret. Apparently he was so hated uh, that he was able to be killed before the people by this Shalom. Um, he really was uh, an unfriended fellow. So he was killed. And it just seems like that's the way it goes in the world. You have civil wars like you have in Sudan. You have bad characters and That seems to be just the way it is, except in, again, in verse 11 and 12, we learn that not only in verse 11 are these deeds recorded, but actually that the reason why Zechariah only lasted six months is not because that's just the way it is generally. In other words, the unfolding of history, that's the way it is because that's what God said it would be like. God had said to Jehu all the way back, in 2 Kings chapter 10, that his, the sons, his sons would last to the fourth generation. God had given King Jehu that kind of opportunity for a dynasty, and God fulfilled his word, and so it was. <laughs> and so it was. Six months reign, and so it was. In other words, it was the word of God that was the determining factor in the unfolding of those chaotic days. Evil is powerful and influential, but evil is not ultimately sovereign. This Shalom fellow, son of Jabesh, he's the one who led the coup. He slaughtered Zechariah before the people, and he uh, didn't last uh, one month, verse 13. (laughs) So apparently... Uh, even though nobody really uh, put up a stink when he killed Zechariah, um, they, they didn't think too keenly of him. And so Menahem, uh, this son of Gadi, went up only one month after Shalom did his dirty work and he took out Shalom. So we're going from King Zechariah to King Shalom to King Menahem in the span of seven months, less than a year. And he goes up from these various cities and he leads for a while. Very, we get a very tragic scene in verse 16 that is hard to take in. One of the things I, though, appreciate about the Bible is it does not, while it does not describe depravity in lurid detail, the Bible describes the real world we live in, the world with unthinkable horrors. Yes, this is the world that God is sovereign over. This is the world that God is going to redeem. And Menahem is a brutal character and has no respect for even those who are most vulnerable. 
Menahem comes and goes. He lasted uh, 10 years. Sorry. Thank you for helping me. He lasted 10 years in Samaria, again, the capital there. You remember the hill, maybe surrounded by the fields, a beautiful setting. And he, just like the other fellows, now that's, this is an interesting uh, aspect. So here we go from Jeroboam II to Zechariah. He lasts for six months, and then Shalom kills Zechariah, and then Menahem kills Shalom, and then Menahem. But what's consistent with all of these kings, even though they apparently hate each other's guts, is that they consistently are faithful to the cult of Bethel and Dan, the sins of the Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It's part of tell, it's telling us partly why God's judgment ultimately came upon Israel is because while their kings were all over the place, while their, their nation was divided by internal fighting and threats from without, consistent through it all was their apostate worship. Tragic. They were devoted to the false worship and the religion set up by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It was the it was the constant. Our culture talks about diversity all the time these days. Um, and what it means by diversity is not biblical diversity. But in spite of everybody talking about uh, crafting their own you know, image, their own, um, their own crafting their own life and interests, and everybody has to kind of basically make themselves and, and be their own person consistent across it all, in our culture is the worship of self and and the culture is devoted to it It, it, it's the appearance of variety and diversity but in reality our culture is is devoted to godlessness and the pursuit of self so uh, all of these kings were devoted to the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he set up in Bethel and Dan so, in verse 19, the judgment of God comes. Paul, king of Assyria. Assyria is in the north, northeast of Israel. And he came against the land. Huh. Well, is that just part of ancient um, history, Middle Eastern history? The rise and fall of the kingdom of Assyria. And yes, that, this is just history. But this is another occasion of, and so it was. Why did the bull, the king of Assyria, come against the land? Well, you could go and look in, in any library. You can do online searches and you will find um, some wonderful, in-depth accounts of the history of the ancient Near East. And the Assyrian culture is one of the most studied and well-known cultures, excuse me, because they left behind so much archaeological evidence and writings and so forth. We know a lot about the Assyrians, and because we know a lot about the Assyrians, we have some depictions, like I showed last week, of of, uh, Israelites from this time period. Uh, but, but you could find out why they, they rose up and you will find different historians positing why and different geopolitical factors of why Assyria was on the rise at this time. But I want to invite you to turn, keep your finger here, turn back to Deuteronomy 28. 
Now, Deuteronomy 28 is going back a long ways, not just a number of pages, but in terms of years. We're going back to the time when Moses was still alive. Israel was on its way out of Egypt, having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, about to enter into the land. Israel at this point hasn't even been led by Joshua into the land. They haven't even conquered the land yet. David and Solomon are a long ways off, and never mind the point in history we're studying tonight. And yet way back when, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. Well, 47. Let's start with 47. God was warning the people all the way back then, because you did not serve Yahweh your God with gladness and a merry heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Verse 49, Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Way back then, God warned by his word that if Israel was not faithful to the covenant and went and worshipped other gods or worshipped God falsely, that ultimately in the future he would send against them a nation from afar. Assyria is several hundred miles from Israel. Their language they could not understand. And God all the way back then said they would be a brutal nation. And again, you can study ancient Near Eastern history and you can find reports on the brutality, particularly of the Assyrians. Uh, They um, had a practice, among others, uh, just awful. Um, Some things I can't even say. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all ages here tonight. But they would impale didn't matter what age you were. Um, if the Assyrians came and warred against you when they left, there was weeping and utter terror. God had promised that would happen all the way back in the days of Moses. And all these years later, and so it was. Paul, at this point, doesn't take over Israel. He's bought off by Menahem. He raises some money, a large sum of money, and pays the king of Assyria. And he leaves, verse 20, this Paul, king of Assyria. He didn't stay in the land. And it seemed like Israel had escaped. Not so. In the 50th year of Uzziah, or Azariah, king of Judah, verse 23 of 2 Kings 15, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became Israel and reigned two years. Again, he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, just like the other guys. He was devoted to the religion of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And lo and behold, Pekah, son of Ramalia, his officer, conspired against him. Another coup. Uh, This is the kind of turmoil in Israel And it is part of God's judgment upon the nation for their 
apostasy and idolatry. Pico was able to strike him in the castle of the king's house. We, we, again, we could see in those pictures to this day, you can see the outline of that very house. And that is where this took place. He killed the king in his place. And after, in the 52nd year, the last year of Uzziah's reign, verse 27, Pekah, son of Ramalia, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 20 years. 20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and again devoted to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And in the days of Pekah, another king of Assyria, a very well-known king and well-attested in ancient archaeology, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came. And this time, he was not going to be bought off, the Assyrians. He comes to the northeastern part of Israel, and he takes significant cities in the land of Galilee and the land of Naphtali, the people who live in darkness. If you lived up there, that's where you were exposed first to an invading army. And knowing that the Assyrians are brutal, and that's part of their tactic to strike fear into potential enemies. How do you think those soldiers treated people after marching all those miles? Soldiers just want to be home. Uh, but if they're not going to be home and, and these pagan godless soldiers, if they're going to be marched hauled all across this land to this little puny nation that's perhaps threatening rebellion, when they finally arrive there, they are going to unleash their wrath. And the first ones to get a taste of that were those in the, well, be your northeast. These cities, Galilee in the land of Naphtali. And here is a small little line in verse 29. But oh, is it a tragic line. He took them away into exile to Assyria. Now, God had promised to give the land to the people of Israel. Tribes like Naphtali were given a designated portion. We're supposed to be reading our Bibles here. I mean, we're a long ways after Exodus and Joshua and the promise to invade and take over the land, to receive the promised land. But this is, this is the storyline. God gave them the land, but because of their idolatry and their adultery, spiritual adultery, after several hundred years, God finally began fulfilling his word that not only would a nation from afar come and fight against them, but he would take them off and they would be scattered.
Pekah, son of Ramalia, remained king over Israel in Samaria, but he increasingly became a weak figure. And then Hosea, son of Elah, verse 30, made a conspiracy against Pekah, and Pekah died. We are left with verse 32 and following in the second year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham. So we began with Uzziah and his 52-year reign, and now we end with the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. In contrast to these kings of Israel in the north, he did, verse 34, what was right in the sight of Yahweh, as Uzziah had done. Only those high places, we saw some pictures of those that we have archaeological evidence of, were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of Yahweh. And in those days, verse 37, even though there was evidence of continuing faithfulness, the ongoing unfaithfulness generally in the people of Judah, because of that, Yahweh began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, against Judah. Where was God in all this? Turn to Isaiah 6. We end chapter 2 Kings 15 in the 52nd year of Uzziah's reign and his death. Where was God? In all the upheaval of Israel in the north, the coming and going of various kings, the coups. Isaiah 6.1. Isaiah the prophet wrote, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Where was God in all those tumultuous years? High, lifted up, on his throne. And seeing to it that his word, every word was fulfilled. So it was. Let's pray. We are humbled tonight, O God, by this portion of your word, because we recognize that within us is the capacity of the kind of unfaithfulness that we witness in Israel. 
We know that even among your new covenant people, the churches that are recorded in the New Testament, that there can be found this kind of malformed worship and adultery and apostasy. We're humbled by that. And we beg tonight, O God, have mercy and keep us for yourself. Guard us and watch over us. And in the midst of the fray around us, we pray that you would keep us quiet. That we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus high and lifted up. That in the days we live in with much fear that we would not fear, but that we would be comforted in the fear and dread of you. And we thank you, even as we're humbled by this text, we are also greatly encouraged at the thought that your word is being fulfilled fearfully so, even in the seeming chaotic unfolding of year by year that goes around us. And, oh God, we cannot wait until after that time when our Lord comes, returns to this earth, and is king over all the earth, that we will be able to say, reflecting back on the faithfulness of the unfolding of all your promises, and so it was. We bless you for this and your faithfulness tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.